Thinking, you know, this was the era of the self-made man, and this is a guy who just invented himself out of words. He was a great wordsmith, and he he was not like a particularly good-looking man. Um, uh, he, he was charismatic, but he just invented himself out of words. He rose from obscurity to, uh, you know, I always compare him to Abraham Lincoln, who, like Strang, started out as this farm boy in the sticks and became a country lawyer and a postmaster and um, and a member of the state legislature uh, in Illinois in Lincoln's case. And their careers were on kind of parallel tracks for a long time. And for, for much of that time, Strang was far more famous than Lincoln. And so, again, we think back and we think, oh, it's a joke to compare Strang to Lincoln. But, you know, <laughs> you catch it in the right year, it would be a joke to compare Lincoln to Strang, right? Hello, listeners. Welcome to This Week in Mormons. I'm Jeff Openshaw. If you have dabbled a bit in church history, particularly near the end of the Nauvoo era, there is likely a name you've come across but learned little else about, James Strang. For most Latter-day Saints, the story of the church after Nauvoo follows those who went with Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve across the plains and eventually into what is now the Salt Lake Valley. However, some saints chose to follow other leaders claiming to hold the rightful mantle of the church. Among those, James Strang, who claimed to have been appointed by Joseph Smith himself to take over the church. Strang eventually led an offshoot of the church that settled on an island in Lake Michigan and effectively ran a pirate colony. But there's much more to James Strang than just that. And today we'll be talking to author Miles Harvey, who has a new book out covering the history of this little-known breakaway group within Mormonism, known now as the Strangites, and its inscrutable leader, James Strang. Uh, There's a history here you truly have to read to believe, as well as plenty of lessons for all of us, wherever we are on our spiritual journey, and it's a great discussion. Before we get to that, just some housekeeping. I'd like to ask a few things of you. If you have not subscribed to This Week in Mormons, please hit that subscribe button wherever you're getting your podcasts. Also, if you listen to this show and you have not yet left us a positive review, now is the time, everybody. Please do it right now while you are listening. It'll take you just a couple of minutes, and it will make me so happy. Uh, Also, please support us on Patreon. $2 a month helps us keep the lights on. We would greatly appreciate that. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thisweekendmormons. And follow us on social media. If you have any questions or feedback, email contact at thisweekendmormons.com or DM us on Facebook or Instagram or even Twitter, whatever you like. We're only 10 episodes away from our 500th, which is just amazing to me. So if you could help us out the way I've asked, that would mean so, so much as we make our way up to such a huge milestone in the history of the show. But enough of that. Housekeeping is out of the way. Let's get Miles on the line and let's learn more about the self-professed monarch, James Strang, and why he is relevant to us as Latter-day Saints. Buckle up. Miles Harvey, the author of The King of Confidence, is here with us. Miles, it's great to have you here. Uh, Jeff, it's great to be here. This was... A terrific book. This read like a novel. Like, honestly, if you did not know this was actually based on historical accounts, you would think this was just a fascinating novel about antebellum America. Well, that's that's what I set out to do. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm a storyteller at heart. Um, I'm not a trained historian, but I sort of have made my way as a, a writer and a book author um, sort of telling narrative history. Um and this story was just an amazing story to work on. I kept, um, when I was writing the book and in interviews like this, I used the phrase, I'm not making this up. And I believe, and the amazing thing is like, like I said, I knew, I knew who James Strang was, but learning about his actual life and there's some parallels to Joseph Smith's own rise as a, as a prophet. And there's some stuff that's just totally like way out there and different than anything you would expect. Like even just, we'll get more into it, but just the fact that essentially you had people squatting on on federal land compared to uh, the pioneer era during Joseph Smith when they scrambled to actually buy, to get funds to actually buy the land that they had. But it seemed that James Strang just didn't care. Um, and they were just doing what they were going to do. But that's, that's getting ahead of ourselves uh, quite a bit. Um, but what, uh, like, Miles, what brought you to this story? You are not a member of our church, as far as I know. Um, what brought you into an interest 
in Mr. James Strang. So I have a brother-in-law, a guy by the name of Chris Carr, who's also a good friend. And he grew up in a little town called Burlington, Wisconsin, which is about, oh, a couple hours northwest of Chicago, just over the Wisconsin border. And I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I was visiting his family up in Burlington. And Chris and I started driving around and he started pointing out these beautiful old buildings and telling me this story about a Mormon utopian colony uh, that had once been in his town and how some um, of the remaining members of this group, the Strangites, still lived there. And I remember thinking, wow, what a story. But then I didn't think much about James Strang and his colony for many years. And about, I don't know, five or six years ago, um, my agent contacted me and said, there's a guy from Little Brown, you know, a big New York publishing house, an, yeah, editor, yeah. an, an editor there who wants to talk to you. And of course, you know, I was definitely open to that conversation. I didn't have a book project at the time. and um, uh, But I was skeptical because I thought, you know, how good could it be if I didn't think of it? Basically, that's what I thought. And uh, but I, this guy Ben George, uh, got a hold of me and said, you know, there's this historical figure, James Jesse Strang, and I know your work, and I think you might be the right person to write a book on him. And I started looking into Strang, and I was just amazed from the start by this guy. Um, and a, a lot of things drew me to his story, which is just an incredible story by any standards. But um, one of them was that he was a Midwestern guy. I'm a Midwesterner. And I, and I think that um, our stories are often sort of overlooked. And I don't mean that in like a regional way, like we've got these quirky regional stories that people should care about. I think we're like people in Salt Lake, we're a crucial part of uh, the national epic. And so this, that was one of the things that attracted me to this story. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. I wanted to make a joke. So what attracted you to the story? Was it a publisher said, Hey, write a book about, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> I, I'm a professional writer. And so, <laughs> but, but I, I gotta say, I w I've had some, um, interest. Uh, my first book was a bestseller. And back at that time, there were some occasional interest from, um, on these sorts of, well, we've got an idea for you. And uh, yeah, they, yeah. They, invariably, even if there was some money that sounded good or something, I mean, I certainly didn't do this book on a mercenary level. I, this, this was uh, probably, uh, the favorite, my favorite project I've, I've done. Yeah. So, so, so it, like, I was really pleased that someone was interested in having me write a book, uh, but yeah, uh, I was sure. fully prepared to say, well, you know, uh, partly, if I wasn't interested, I, I, I've got a full-time job as a college professor, and uh, you know, writing a book is another full-time job, and I just wouldn't have had the energy to write right. some mercenary project. This this was really near and dear to my heart, and got to be more so. That's cool, and and I believe is that bestseller you referred to the is that the Island of Lost Maps? That's right. Uh, yeah. So so are you a map head? I am, although because I am, I am too, Miles, and I feel like we could do a whole episode about. Yeah, that. yeah. Well, you know, and 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 uh, um, you know, I don't know. Maps play into this story, and as you know, um, do. maps play into the uh, the founding um, of um, uh, Salt Lake City, and um, th that was sort of an amazing. Um, leap of faith in so many ways, the migration West, um, uh, partly because the maps weren't very good <laughs> at the time. So they didn't really know where they were going. So I've always been really, uh, uh, <laughs> really impressed, not only by the amazing logistic, the, um, leap of faith that it took. And, and I use that word in, in a very serious way, but also, um, just the fact that um, Brigham Young convinced people um, to go into a place that was only mapped in the most sketchy way uh, as they were going out there. It's just uh, an extraordinary thing. 
I imagine researching this, you went to, I'm guessing you went to Salt Lake City, because I saw a lot of your sources seem to come from uh, the Church History Library. Just a, Yeah, uh, I, had, I, so I didn't. I didn't. So the, the Strang collections are really good at Yale. Um, Interesting. And, okay. and at Central Michigan University. And then I used a variety of other sources. I did draw from from some stuff from, from the archives out there. But um, as you know, That's the, yeah. the archivists are one, wonderful in terms of like um, communicating with authors there. And I, I, did, I really didn't need that much stuff, but I did, I did use some stuff and some of it's yeah, online. I, yeah. <laughs> some of it's online. I imagine it is. So, yeah. no, that's interesting to know. Cause you're looking at it. I, I saw there were so many different, just, just pictures you had things that are inserted in the book. And I thought, wow, like, is the entire Strang collection at our own church history library? Are we the ones holding the keys to the story of James Strang? But I guess it's scattered around. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. We don't get to have everything. Yeah. Um, so we talk about James Strang. And of course, we said the book is The King of Confidence. The subtitle, by the way, everybody, is, I've, I've, I've missed that, is A Tale of Utopian Dreamers, Frontier Schemers, True Believers, False Prophets, and the Murder of an American Monarch. So there's a lot going on here. Um and Miles joked with me before we started because I didn't want to give away too much of the book. And he said, well, we already know it gets murdered. So it's, it's in the title. So, um, But who was James Strang? Who is this guy we hear about in our own church history? So he came out of the same broad part of New York State that Joseph Smith did, which was known then as the Burned Over District. And I, I love that title because I think it's so illustrative of what was happening there at the time where these fires, f- religious fires were always burning through, but also political fires and also just like spiritual fires. It's where the spiritualism movement starts. And it's where all these crazy things kind of emerge from Western New York uh, and, and, and all these beautiful and fruitful things emerge from Western New York. So you not only have Smith uh, founding that, that the church, but you also have, you know, the women's movement taking shape at this time. And you also have um, uh, the abolition movement, not necessarily centered there, but a, a lot of abolitionists are from Western New York. And you also have all these um, uh, just religious fires in the Christian church, burning through there. And, you know, um, uh, and this is the world that James Strang grew up in. And from the very start, this guy was like a mix of uh, an idealist uh, and an opportunist. Um, And so one of the great things about Strang is that we have his diaries from early on, and uh, he has these grandiose dreams. He he literally says uh, in his diaries uh, that he wants to marry then Princess Victoria of England, and he's you know <laughs> yeah, if I okay. could if I could only meet her, I could marry her and be king of England. And if I was king of England, I would I would test myself on the battlefield. He also confesses that he's a complete atheist, even though he comes from a very religious Baptist home. And but he also says something very interesting from the start. He says. Yeah, you know, I'm an atheist. And he writes all this stuff in code, so no one can can tell what he's saying. He said, but but you know what? I'm really good at talking about religion. And when I talk about religion, people really are impressed with me. And you know, I think from the early on he realized he had kind of a charisma and a power over people, but he also just he didn't use it f- for good things always. He was a country lawyer, he was a Postmaster General. He, he was a, um, uh, um, uh, a, a newspaper man in Western New York, but he failed kind of at all three of them. And what he was really good at, was, at apparently, was conning people. And that's what got him kicked out of New York. He sold some land that didn't exist. Um, and so then he went west. And back then, west meant Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> Where I live, the region I live in was not called the Midwest then. And it wasn't called the Midwest for 50 years. It was called the West. And there he visited Nauvoo and, um, in, uh, and he converted or didn't, but claimed to convert. We don't know. Um, uh, and, uh, um, went back to Wisconsin and shortly thereafter, um, Joseph Smith was murdered and a few months after that, or a few weeks after that, I think, um, Strang produced a letter that was supposedly from Smith, basically saying, 
I hand <laughs> this in large church over to you, James Jesse Strang. It would sort of be like handing, uh, you know, the Defense Department over to a private in the army. You know, Strang had had j- just been ordained, um, didn't wasn't well connected in the church particularly, um, and it drew the ire of other people in the church uh, from the start. Uh, and the letter is considered a forgery. It's quite a good forgery because Strang was quite good at that stuff and he had experience uh, as a postmaster. And so he sort of knew what he was doing. Um, but somehow he he built a following um, through various revelations and miracles. He, like Smith, um, dug up some plates in um, this little town of Wisconsin. And um, surprise, surprise, he was able to translate these plates, which declared pretty much that he was, again, the heir to the church. And so, um, uh, you know, it's his story is sort of incredible, but um, Brigham Young considered him a, a really serious threat for not just for the short run, but in the succession crisis and afterwards in, in the long run. Um, and it's easy to look back and say, oh, you know, this guy's a joke. But at the time, um, he was a, a real threat, not only to Brigham Young, but um, to uh, the U.S. government. Why was he a threat to the U.S. government? Well, after he started this utopian colony in Wisconsin, um, he attracted um, several prominent members uh, of the church to go with him. One of them, notably Reuben Miller, who then got to Wisconsin with him and and decided Strang was a total fraud and ended up going out to Utah and and making some significant contributions to the church. But um, Strang made enemies in Wisconsin. You know, the way I think of it is his uh, enemies could stay in town and his followers could leave town. So that was an ideal. So he decided to move the colony to uh, this island in the middle of Lake Michigan, in northernmost Lake Michigan, a place called Beaver Island. And when he got there, he um, declared himself king of earth and heaven, uh, set up what well, sure. I mean, as one does, yeah, as one as one does, of course, and 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 we can laugh about it. And and in some ways, it was laughable. You know, he was crowned uh, with a paper crown uh, on a throne stuffed with moss in a half finished log building, um, uh, with some stage props from a, a kind of con man. Uh, well, he was a well known in Nauvoo to this guy George Adams, who was also a a Shakespearean actor. Um, but here's the thing. Um, the U S government took Strang, this, this sort of quasi independent, uh, Island kingdom in Lake Michigan, seriously enough and a big enough threat to sort of U S sovereignty that, um, Millard Fillmore, the president of the United States of America sent in, uh, the Navy's first iron-hulled warship to invade the island and bring Strang back to justice. And Strang and a bunch of his followers were hauled off to Detroit for a, a federal trial there, um, which in one of the many <laughs> amazing twists of fate in his life, he won. His, uh, he and his followers were all found innocent, and then the rest of the charges were dropped. And um, when Millard Fillmore left office in 1853 as, as um, one of our most undistinguished presidents ever. I mean, well, uh, for re-election, he managed to win Maryland. <laughs> well. And that was it. So great job. Well, and and so uh, Phil, Fillmore goes away quietly. And when he leaves in 1853, Strang is still king on Beaver Island. So he he was a really amazing guy. Um, among other things, he set up what essentially amounted to a pirate colony on the island and uh, sent people out. <laughs> he sent ships out to raid um, uh, local, you know, coastal towns, but he also sent people out all over the Midwest to steal horses, which was a huge uh, crime uh, back then. Horses were just essential to so many things and they brought a lot of money. Um, and 
You know, one of the things about the King of Confidence that I think I've really sort of moved the needle on, there were, there were uh, three good books about Strang before, um, and, and I was proud to sort of build on some of the research that people who went before me did. But one of the things I really think that I that I added to the story was, you know, there was uh, sort of this, in fact, one author argued that all uh, of the, the, the criminal charges against Strang were made up by um, his enemies and were a result of um, uh, bias against the church. Um, uh, and of course, that was rampant, especially in the Midwest. I mean, we all know the story of uh, why people um, had to leave Nauvoo. It wasn't from the kind-heartedness of their neighbors, right? Um, but uh, I uh, showed um, some examples. One, very much a real-time example of an incident that happened in Perrysburg, Ohio, where um, the reporting is in real time, a series of stories, a horse thief comes to town, a posse goes out after him. Uh, he's arrested uh, and brought back. He's one of Strang's top officials. He's uh, sort of like a muscle man for Strang. Um, the, Port, the, he's the Porter Rockwell for the- Yeah, yeah he's, he's the enforcer. Yeah, there's, there were a couple of brothers, the Pierce brothers, who were enforcers. And uh, he was one of them. And uh, the local editor, who was really quite like many 19th century writers, just a very funny, clever writer, sort of is making fun and predicting, you know, this guy not, might not be in jail too long. And then Strang himself arrives in town. The editor writes about that. Um, there's a trial. The man is convicted, but it's overturned on a technicality where the local sheriff has not filled out the right paperwork or something, and the and the local papers are all over him about it. Like why, <laughs> you know, the the implication being that he was bribed. Um, and then, sure enough, uh, this horse thief doesn't get sent off to state prison, and. Um, Right after that, there's a jailbreak in which the sheriff is accused of leaving doors open, et cetera. And sure enough, he shows up back on Beaver Island. And so it's it's clear to me that whatever charges um, against Strang were made up by his enemies, there was also ample evidence that he was running a pretty serious criminal enterprise out of Beaver Island. Do you think, um, I mean, obviously, like you just said, he was running a legitimate, a legitimate criminal, figure that one out. But yeah, he was running a criminal enterprise out of Beaver Island. Do you, have you seen any research that would indicate that the U.S. government was wary of Mormon groups, whatever they may be, uh, just after the Nauvoo experience, because Nauvoo had famously had its own charter and essentially the courts just kept Joseph Smith out of trouble for so long. And after all that eventually fell apart and Joseph Smith was killed. Were, were the feds, as it were, sort of burned out on these troublesome Mormons, and so they were a bit quicker to intervene in the case of the Strangites? Sure, and I think probably at Nauvoo, um, it was not just prejudice always that angered people. You know, one of Strang's top lieutenants for a while was this guy, John C. Bennett, who is well known in, in Nauvoo history. He was the head of the Nauvoo Legion. He was the mayor oh, of Nauvoo. Justice loved him at first. Yeah. 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 And he is the guy who um, uh, lobbied for the charter in Nauvoo. And, you know, the charter in Nauvoo gave some quasi-independence. And as a result, uh, you know, even officials in Nauvoo ended up acknowledging this. There was... Uh, um, there were, there were criminal operations in Nauvoo, too. And there's this issue of, of consecration, and I want to use be careful in the definition because I know that's a really important thing in the church. But this, but this idea among some people that consecration involved um, taking uh, possessions from other people. And definitely on Strang's Island, that was how that word uh evolved. But I think John C. Bennett brought that idea to Beaver Island. He was the force behind the settlement of Beaver Island along with Strang. And so I think um, that this idea of an independent place where you're outside the reach, the regular reach of the law, you know, that both has 
good effects and bad effects. But yeah, I think the U.S. government um, didn't like Strang. That was very clear. They did a very clumsy job of prosecuting him. Uh, ironically, <laughs> the uh, prosecutor in the 1851 case against Strang later worked for the church in Utah, which is one of the great uh, delicious ironies of this book. There are a, many. That was was that Gates. Yeah, a Bates. Yeah, yeah. Bates, yeah. Bates, Bates, yeah. Bates, yeah. Yeah. So when, and, and I, that cracked me up when I was near the end of the book when that little bit came out. And did he happen to join the church or he just moved to Salt Lake City and was just representation? Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, a, I think I think I would be surprised if he joined the, the church. I mean, he seemed to be a guy who was, you know, part of the problem in the federal trial against Strang is he, he just wanted to keep proving you know, sort of that the, the, the church was misguided. It was sort of one of these, and and he wanted to prove the more outrageous um, uh, charges against Strang and his people. Whereas, uh, if he would have done, there were Strang and his people were they, they bought some property on Beaver Island, but they were basically just squatting on federal land. It was basically a squatter kingdom. Um, the Native Americans. Um, who had lived on the island, even though they were to be removed from the island eventually by a treaty, but they just moved away. And then the other whites on the island were eventually forced off. Um, and so you, you sort of had this this squatter kingdom, and, and Strang was cutting down the trees because that was a big income for him because uh, steamboats then stopped at Beaver Island to get from Detroit to Chicago before the railroads. You had to go up and wind around through the Great Lakes. And this was a stop, and this was a great way of making money. Um, also, trees were green gold, Wisconsin and Michigan trees. Uh, they settled the prairie. So trees were very, very valuable um, then. And the federal government could have easily just charged with Strang with poaching trees, which was a pretty serious enough crime, but I think kind of in this prosecutor's eyes, kind of uh, a little boring, you know? <laughs> and so as a result, um, Strang got off. Um, and, you know, you asked about the U.S. government. I, I, I think the U.S. government did definitely did not like Strang and was probably partly complicit in his murder. Oh, well, spoiler alert. But yes, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But yeah, that, that's yeah, it's very interesting. How did they decide on Beaver Island in the first place? You mentioned John Bennett played a role in it. Because before any of this happened, they were in, is, is it Vorey or Vorey, Wisconsin? Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, well, it, the, the town, now we call it Burlington, and the and the colony was called Vorey. Um, and, and why were they, and was that just because that's where Strang was from, and that's where he claimed to find the what? Raja Manchu plates? That was right, right. The woods? Yeah, but I mean, actually, there's sort of an interesting history there. there his He was... Friends with people in the church in Western New York. One of his best friends, um, you know, uh, they'd all become members of the church, and they had moved to Wisconsin even before it opened up as a territory. So this was already a Mormon settlement there, um, and so he was definitely around other people. He had come to the Midwest to work on the Illinois Michigan canal, which uh, at that time promised to be a hugely important waterway, but um, there was financial trouble and he couldn't get um, a job with them. Um, and so he just, he moved to Wisconsin and um, yeah. So uh, I think, you know, depending on who you believe um, it's possible. There was a later story from someone who knew him that the whole idea was, to get um, people to move to Burlington, especially after the sacking of Nauvoo, as kind of a, a land scheme he, that Strang and his friends were trying to pull off. Um, it may or may not be true. In any case, Burlington wasn't like the perfect place for him. And I, I just think, you know, I think there's there's different ways to think about the island. I mean, islands loomed large in uh, the imagination of the 19th century. Um, and, and, but, you know, when we, when I've written a book about maps, as, as we were saying, and I, you know, islands have always had this special place in our imagination as places where um, normal rules don't apply. Um, uh, normal codes of conduct don't, don't exist exactly. Um, there's a reason Thomas Moore set the original utopia on an island, right? It's his place to start over and begin again. So Strang was always um, attracted 
to to that um, uh, and uh, had been very influenced as a young man by um, Percy Bysshe Shelley's poetry and the, and, and uh, um, where there's in, in Queen Mab there's this utopian island and and you know so I think that that it loomed large in his imagination that way but also in a very skeptical way islands are great places if you want to run a criminal enterprise they just are <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard for your enemies to get in and you can defend them and you can you, you know you can go and raid other people and come back and uh, when they chase you you uh, turn them away. And, you know, it's just, uh, I think there was, uh, like everything was Strang. It's what makes him wonderfully three-dimensional. There were completely cynical um, motivations and probably mixed in with some idealistic motivations as well. And just so everyone can, if we can paint a word picture for all of you, Beaver Island in Lake Michigan, it's kind of up by the Straits of Mackinac. So basically where the mitten of Michigan crosses over to the Upper Peninsula. Um, just so you get an idea where it is. And it's a decent sized island too. I mean, if you look at Google maps, like you hear a story like this and I, I picture, you know, a tiny, tiny little speck of island where all these people are crowded together as a little utopian commune, but it's not, it's not small. I mean, taking over that thing took a long time and it was a decent amount of territory. Yeah. I think it's about, um, I may be getting this wrong, but it's seven miles wide and 13 miles long. And it's, um, it's, I think it's the biggest island in Lake Michigan. Um, which may not be saying much, but it's impressive. You know, I, I, I visited while researching for the book and, um, you know, you take a ferry there and all of a sudden this big, long, beautiful patch of green just emerges on the horizon. And, it, you know, it, it had many things to recommend it, including its beauty. It's got a great kind of natural deep bay. So getting ships in and out of there was always uh easy and still is or a convenient thing to do um and you know it it's just it's got a lot going for it it's very beautiful i i loved visiting there and would gladly visit again i don't think i'd want to be there in the winter and and strang quickly found that that his getting people to the island was not as easy uh he had to kind of put the pressure on and he was you know he was saying Look, the second coming is 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 just around the corner. There are ominous signs. We better get up to the island. But in winter, man, it gets to be like thirty degrees below zero there. The whole lake ices over up there, and it, it's just must be a miserable place in the winter. And even now, you know, it's got a much bigger summer population than a winter population. Huh. Um, I want to back up a. I guess a, a ways bit now. Uh, the succession crisis. You mentioned that Brigham Young was sage enough to see James Strang as a potential th- threat in a way when most people would look at it and say like, who's this guy who claims to have a letter? I mean, you, you seem to indicate that by and large, the the bulk of the church didn't take him seriously. And I think given that he took a minority of followers with him, that kind of stands up. So why was Brigham Young so concerned then? over this little upstart? Well, there were many reasons to be concerned and it, it over a, a kind of a period of time too. Um, I'm no church historian, but um, from what I can see and what, what I've researched, Strang had at least two advantages from the start. One is that he claimed prophecy from the get-go. Uh, and as um, some of your listeners will know that, um, Brigham was a little bit slower to claim that at first. He was sort of the, I don't know, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth here, but sort of offered himself as a bureaucratic successor to Smith, right? Um, I think that's, yeah, that's mostly fair right, for, for our purposes. Yeah, now, yeah, say that. yeah, yeah. And, and feel free to correct me. But Strang was saying, you know, I'm conduit to God, right? And it turned out that people in the church wanted that. And so some people were drawn to him. I guess I'd add maybe uh, uh, number two, Strang was close by. So Smith is taking people into an unknown wilderness for most of them. Um, It's just a horribly frightening experience. Um, And Strang's a couple hundred miles from Nauvoo saying, hey, why don't you just come up here? It's nice. (laughs) It's close by. And, you know, I should add a third factor is um, Strang was – 
um, in among the the claimants in, in the succession crisis, he was um, the the well, I should say a very strong anti polygamy candidate. That's sort of how he posed himself. I guess candidate's not the right word, but but um, uh, of course. Uh, like many things in his life, he flip flopped on that later. Uh, when he declared well, himself, he, he was he was he was you know for polygamy before he was against it. I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I to no, he, get some yeah. John Kerry in there forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. He, so so he was completely against polygamy, and that and he was very vocal about. It. He said, "I I I have I will never change on this. I will never ever change on this." And then, sure enough. Uh, he met a young woman and and changed on that. And then uh, at the time of his death, he had five wives, um, four of them pregnant. Uh, so, oh, well done, well done, James. Yeah. Um, actually, let's talk about some of those wives because so he had his actual lawful wife who was not really enthusiastic about the entire enterprise. Is what was what I get from the yeah. Book. No, I think Her- it's it's fair to say that she and it, and maybe wasn't too energized about Strang, you know, I mean, I think his first wife, Mary was a very uh, conventional woman. I think she had a really rough life and I'm, I'm not alone in that. Her, her, their own daughter, one of their own daughters talked about what a miserable existence um, Mary had Um, her father. And this is another thing I've, I've added to the, to the knowledge about Strang. Her father, who not too many books ago was being called a candle maker, which was actually a canal contractor. And he was a very, infamously corrupt canal contractor and kind of just a a, a scoundrel uh, in his own right. And uh, so Mary grew up around this, this guy who was deceptive. He went to jail, he worked on the Erie Canal. He, it was, canals were a great way of uh, committing graft. You know, you'd get this big patronage canal contract job. You're supposed to build part of the canal. He would just take the money and run. He got caught in New York, sent to jail. Um, you would think that that would be his last job, especially since his arrest got some publicity. Well, he just kept getting these canal contracting jobs. And so Mary grew up around another scoundrel, but she was also just a very conventional woman. And you can say what you want about James J. Strang. He was not a conventional person. He was really well-read. He was intellectually curious. He he was uh, he had a broad range of interests. He was a real um, uh, one-of-a-kind person and... Uh, I think for sort of a conventional 19th century, you know, uh, it was in America, so we can't quite use this word, but a Victorian woman, that was really rough. Well, if Mary Strang, his first wife, was a very conventional woman of her time, Strang's first plural wife or second wife was every bit as unconventional in many ways. Um, So the story starts in 18... 49 and 1850, when Strang tours the East Coast for many months with a young man by the name of Charles Douglas. Um, and he introduces everyone to this young man as, uh, or this young man to everyone as his nephew and private secretary. Um, and um, there's even a picture of, and, and this young fellow looks quite dashing in the picture, only it wasn't a fellow at all. Um, this was Strang's first plural wife in disguise. Uh, for months and months, she traveled all over the East Coast with Strang um, in disguise as a man. And one of the really interesting things about working on this book was uh, gender relations of mid-19th century century America. Um, what's, what's interesting is, is not that, um, they fooled everybody because they certainly didn't, you know, there were people who were really rolling their eyes at Strang and there were a lot of people who were sort of whispering, like, is, is that right? That doesn't really look like a young man. That, that, that person has some curves that don't seem right. Um, you know, and, 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 but that they fooled a lot of people. And I think that has to do with gender relations in the 19th century, where there's there were these signifiers of womanhood. Women would wear many petticoats. They'd wear these huge dresses. To show femininity was like this huge outward display. And I think we don't realize how much we're influenced by that stuff. Um, and so the idea of a woman in men's clothing was just 
so out there that people just literally didn't believe their eyes. Um, so this was one kind of, I mean, confidence trick that Strang pulled, which was just kind of amazing. And this woman, Elvira, is quite an interesting uh, figure. You know, in, in the book, uh, I quote Margaret Fuller, who's like this early women's rights writer who's who's just kind of wonderful. But she talks about how women in the 19th century, their, their roles were so rigidly um, confined that to go outside them, they became, you know, gender outlaws. And I think in many ways, Elvira was kind of a gender outlaw, but in interesting ways too. I mean, she got to write for Strang's newspaper as Charles J. Douglas. She got to perform certain rites uh, within the church because no one uh, knew any better. Um, and so I think she really got to see, um, like very few other women of the time did, what it was like to see life from a man's perspective. And I think that sort of affected her. She was always, uh, even the, uh, after she went back to Beaver Island um, and um, uh, became uh, Strang's sort of acknowledged first plural wife, um, uh, she continued to act in kind of unconventional ways. And so she was a really, really interesting person. And uh, Strang married uh, over the course of time, three other women, and, and some of them were quite interesting uh, too. Uh, and so he, um, he, he led a, a complex uh, and interesting domestic life on top of a hugely complex political and religious life. Do you think that uh, his his penchant for dressing his polygamist wife as a man is partially what led to his edict about pantaloons on the island later yeah, on? Yeah, so that so that's just so hard to to know. So my theory about it is this: so first of all, Elvira and some other women, but notice, noticeably, notably, Elvira were wearing pantaloons, which looked to us like not shocking, pajama pants kind of tied at the ankles um, uh, on the island. And you you still would wear a dress kind of over them. The dress would come up higher in front anyway. But these this was absolutely shocking dress. I mean, I think it would be like uh, some woman coming into the, the party in a bikini or something. But it eventually uh, became, these eventually became known as bloomers because this a uh, proto-feminist named Amelia Bloomer famously started wearing pantaloons, uh, but they were doing it on Beaver Island almost a year beforehand. Eventually, Strang ordered all women on the island that they always had to wear pantaloons, or that they that they had to wear pantaloons. And what was that, like, what, what was behind that? Like, does he ever write down why, or just you know uh, reasons? I, I, I well. It was as he was losing control over the kingdom to to a great degree, and my own feeling is that it was um, that it was a that it was power, right? And and uh, I think um, you know sometimes people will ascribe the revolt within his kingdom um, mostly to the pantaloons, and that was the touch point. That was a flashpoint. I mean. Um, but I think it it was more of a symbolic flashpoint. So, in other words, I think um, that if that pantaloons became a symbol of loyalty to Strang. So, if you supported uh, the king uh, and the prophet, um, you wore pantaloons, or you insisted that your wife wear pantaloons. If you opposed him. Um, you refused to wear pantaloons and you refused, uh, you supported your wife in her refusal or you refused to let her wear pantaloons. And if that sounds goofy, I mean, I just think in our own like culture. Like wearing masks today. <laughs> absolutely like wearing masks today. I think it, that so if it sounds goofy to us, uh, we are goofy too, where masks have become this politicized um, thing that. Um, it cuts, you know, a conservative liberal divide. And I say as a city dweller, it's certainly a, 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 an urban rural divide. When I when I travel outside of the city where we just kind of wear masks because we're around each other a lot and um, we got the virus early here. So we know how dangerous and terrible it can be. So and, and it's just uh, and no one likes it, of course. But, you know, we wear them. But I, but but, you know, um so I think pantaloons became kind of the same way. And eventually um, it became uh, the issue that led to a plot against Strang. 
Mm, and we'll we'll get to that in a minute. The plot against Strang. I he did do a couple of uh of genuinely interesting and good and legal things, though, right? The, the two things I think of is he was involved with the Smithsonian and he also well. I was going to say he was also a member of the Michigan State Legislature, but how he got there might have been a bit shady. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, things? well, I mean, I think one thing that's what, that's interesting from your perspective, and it's something again that I think I moved the research along a little bit on, is that Strang was like I say that the one thing that he actually held a consistent and firm opinion on was uh, abolitionism and rights of African Americans. Um, I spoke earlier about this um, corrupt canal contractor he had uh, as a father-in-law, and I, but I think um, at, there's a letter in Strang's files at Yale that I think previous researchers didn't know what to do with it because suddenly he's writing from Virginia about some terrible treatment of some black people, and what it is is. It's Strang going out to clean up his father-in-law's meths. Apparently, his father-in-law has cut and run from this um, from this canal site in West Virginia and sent his son-in-law, the lawyer, out to try to take care of business. And on this canal site, um, there uh, they use slave labor. And so Strang gets out there and he is just appalled by what he sees as a young lawyer. And I think that really stuck with him. I think he was inclined towards that before, but I think seeing the evils of slavery early on were really left an impression on him. And, you know, he, um, he ordained someone into the church, a, a, a black abolitionist into the church in 1849, you know, I think uh, almost 130 years before the Brighamite uh, branch followed suit. And so he was very progressive on this. And as you say, he was uh, elected to the Michigan State Legislature uh, for a district encompassing geographically a huge chunk of Michigan. And um, he got there by hook and crook. Um, uh, But once he got there, it's really interesting. Even his worst opponents talked about how good a job he did and what a good legislator he was and how responsible he was and what great speeches he gave. And um, and one of the things he did is fought really hard for uh, against slavery. Um, he, in his second term, because he got elected not once but twice, um, in his second term, he fought hard against his own party because he was a Democrat in the new Republican Party. The party of Lincoln had just formed and just come into power then. Um, uh, He fought hard for um, uh, what's called a personal liberty law, which was intended and largely worked to um, cut the teeth out of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, which required Northerners to assist uh, Southern slave catchers in, in bringing um, slaves who'd escaped the South back to to their masters. Um, and so one of the curious things about Strang was just how three-dimensional he was. You know, for a writer, it's just so wonderful. He was such a contradictory guy, which is all you can ask for, whether you're a fiction writer or a nonfiction writer, is this three-dimensional, contradictory person. And, and, and yeah, as you mentioned, he was very interested in science. He published a scientific paper in the Smithsonian Annual Report, along with well-known scientists of his time. He also was involved in what's like this, and and Alvira, his his first plural wife, was the person who did sort of the grunt work on this. But but it's scientific grunt work. He was involved in this massive kind of amazing crowdsourcing project to figure out how weather worked in the United States. So the Smithsonian got volunteers from all over the country to take regular, I think, daily weather readings, temperature, barometric pressure, etc. And they put them all together. And this is how we learned that weather fronts move from west to east. This is how weather prediction gets started. And Strang was in on that too. So, you know, one of the things I just love about him is I just see him as a lightning rod for all the enthusiasms and craziness and beauty and and 
truth-seeking and lie-spreading of the mid-19th century. It was all there in one person. And so you mentioned that the mid-19th century, this is sort of almost its own character in the book, right? You paint a picture of this antebellum America that seems to be sort of starting to show its fissures. It seems the public is really drawn in by by schemers and and more complicated figures, all of this leading up to the Civil War. Like, how do you feel that 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 environment, the the culture of America during this period sort of contributed to the rise of someone like Strang and perhaps even his fall? Yeah, well, it was a very um, unstable but exciting time. There'd been um, a huge economic disaster. Uh, the Panic of 1837 was the biggest and longest lasting uh, economic crisis um, before the Great Depression. It had a profound impact on a ton of people, including Strang, who went belly up in it. He'd spent speculating in land and, and, and really lost uh, any money he had in that crisis. But it was also just a time of radical change in all sorts of different areas. You've got technology changing our basic relationships to space and time through the photograph, the telegraph, and the railroads. Um, you've got a communications revolution that rivals the information age of the 21st century. Uh, and Strang was brilliant as a newspaper man and a far-seeing and, and intuitive newspaper man. He was brilliant at manipulating that, this web of information and seeing how he could not only get himself in the news from the farthest edges of the frontier, but kind of control the narrative. He was brilliant about it. And and this the, the United States was suddenly this mobile society. And we were increasingly divided about the subject of slavery. And it was just a crazy, unstable time. And, and truth became porous. There are certain times in our society, in our history, when truth becomes malleable. And so, you know, I use the word confidence in the book. I think we just think of con man and that word comes out of this time, right? And, 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 and it's because it's, we know when that word started. It's 1849. A guy gets arrested in New York and they call him a confidence man. And the, the reason that word spreads so fast through the American lexicon is because confidence is, is basically the de facto national currency. In a super unstable time, you can't count on old measures to figure out where you stand. Um, and so you have to go with confidence. And Strang was able to exude confidence. And so he was able in many ways to make his own truth. Um, and so I find him to be just kind of... Um, uh, the embodiment of those times in many different ways. It was hard to read this and not feel like there were a lot of parallels for our time now. Do, do you think that's fair? Yeah. I mean, I didn't mention uh, our period of history at all in the book. There's an oblique reference in the very first chapter it, it, uh, in the, in the prelude or the, uh, the, the prologue. Um, and, and there's a, 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 a somewhat less oblique, but still oblique, not at all direct reference in, in the final a line of the book. Um, but I do think the, there are comparisons between those times and ours. I mean, we are, we're on a period where truth is very, no matter where you stand politically, truth is very much in question, right? Um, we don't agree on basic things. And um, so people who can kind of invent their own truths um, thrive in our time too. So that definitely in, in, informed um informed the period. And, you know, I got to say, like, um, my work on this book completely overlapped with President Trump's candidacy, election, and presidency. And um, I don't think I would have written the same book um, if I hadn't been kind of going to sleep at night thinking about Strang or thinking about Trump and waking up thinking about Strang. And I think Strang helped me understand Trump, and in some ways Trump helped me understand Strang. But no matter what, it, it, the book would have been different if I'd written it in a different time. So I think in that way, our time is very much reflected in this book. And I, and I got to say that um, many readers, uh, and I'm not upset about this, are reading it as a parable for our own times. You know, I'm an English professor, and I believe strongly in the humanities. And uh, 
and in, in, in the liberal arts. And the idea of the humanities and liberal arts is that by studying the past, we can understand the present and the future, um, or one of the key ideas of the humanities. And so, uh, you know, if, if this gives some people insight into our own time in some way, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for them. And, and uh, it certainly gave me some insight in, in working researching and writing about this. Uh, it, it just, and I don't want to make oversimple comparisons between our time and the antebellum period um, before the civil war, nor do I want to make oversimple comparisons between president Trump and James J. Strang. Uh, well, sure. Yeah. If I wanted to make them, I would have made them in the book, but I am happy that, <laughs> that, that people, um, that people are a- able feel, feel that this gives them some insight into their own times. I, I, that's just what it seems to me, you know, Barbara Tuckman, the, the, the great historian talked about uh, history sometimes as being a distant mirror where we, we catch a glimpse of ourself in history. And I, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to claim too much, but I, but I hope that the book can serve in, for some people as a distant mirror. Well, this mostly makes me feel better because I, I, I felt some of that as I was reading it. And, you know, I, I fully, our listeners, our long suffering listeners are probably like, oh boy, Jeff somehow ties everything back to Trump. But at least I'm not alone. I feel okay. I feel, <laughs> I feel vindicated just a little bit. And I don't think the book is, like you said, I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think it's very overt in the way it would uh, discuss some of those things. And it opens itself up to interpretation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just we're, we're nearing the end of Strang's life, essentially, what was the plot to get rid of him and, and why and what happened? Well, he'd made um, many, many enemies. You know, um, the Beaver Island became um, sort of this contested territory um, between three marginalized groups in that period of time, the Native Americans, um, and the local fishermen, many of whom were um, refugees from Ireland during the, from the potato famine, which was going on then. And then um, obviously the Mormons who had been um, persecuted everywhere they went. And so you had these three kind of marginalized groups fighting it out. Um, the Native Americans were something of a wild card and ended up not um, mattering as much, but they, they kind of sh- would shift allegiances, but wound up mostly siding with the fishermen. Strang, Strang did not have a good um, ability to uh, make friends, it must be said. And so, and he <laughs> plundered a lot of local towns and he'd gotten into, he just, you know, he people had left the colony and he, he just had a lot of enemies. Eventually, I think something was going to happen. And as I said, this pantaloon thing was part of it. But I just think, you know, I think another problem for him, frankly, was polygamy. Um, Elvira, um, his first plural wife, even later wrote that polygamy was never very popular on the island, except for Strang and, and a few of his higher up followers. Um, and I think people, re- some of who had joined the, the, the colony to get away from polygamy were resented it. There were a lot of things leading up to it, um, and, and petty grievances, of course. Um, some of the, the 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 one of the guys who shot him had been um, Strang had ordered him to be whipped, um, not not too much earlier, and so um, in 1856, um, uh, the U.S. Uh, Michigan. Um, which um, was the ironhold warship that had once raided the island, but now sort of made regular rounds. And at the time, Strang had a, a pretty good relationship with the captain, showed up on the island, and the captain asked to see Strang sent an emissary. And Strang walked down to – he apparently, according to at least one witness, said he knew that things were not – good that when he was asked to do that and waiting for him down uh, by the pier were two assassins uh, who opened fire on him and, and didn't kill him, um, shot him several times and beat him and then ran onto the ship and 
were never charged with this murder. And um, Strang um, really amazingly, he was paralyzed from the waist down. He amazingly survived this brutal attack. And I couldn't believe that when reading it. Like I thought he'd die immediately, but I mean, yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, he was shot multiple times, pistol whipped, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and even if these guys were clumsy assassins, which they may have been, it was he was he was, uh, he was uh, you know tough, and and he was uh, he was eventually um, taken uh, by a steamboat uh, and then railroad back to Voree, his first colony in Burlington, Wisconsin, where where he he finally. Uh, died and you know um, such was his fame or infamy at the time that his his assassination and death were front front page news on in the New York Times and um, written about in papers all over the world um, and so um, he wasn't just you know a, a, an asterisk um, to history and. Uh, 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 and certainly not not to the church. You know, in, in 1853, when when Franklin Pierce um, came into power, uh, Brigham Young had been the governor, and 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 some of young people were very convinced that um, um, that Young was going to be replaced as governor of Utah. And and Strang went, started out for Washington. I don't know if he made it to try to um, convince, um, and he had some, some powerful people on his side um, to try to con- convince the president that he should be the governor of Utah, which would have changed <laughs> history quite a bit. Um, I would have uh, gone to James Strang University instead. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, you know, Young would have stayed in charge of the, the, the well, church and, and, and Young didn't, you know, as, as we know, Young didn't you know, he had ways of um, making sure outsiders didn't gain too much power there. He was a very shrewd politician, and so I don't, I don't know if it would have totally affected things. But, but you know, um, Young's emissary in Washington at that time um, took it seriously enough to write Young and say, "Hey, uh, it's it's being rumored that Strang might get this job." You know, so. Um, uh, again, in in retrospect, it seems like oh wow, you know, Strang's a footnote because he because he really is kind of a footnote to church history, and as you say, it's not even really part of Brighamite church history. But but at the time, it wasn't quite so clear. I mean, I I, I think that that's one thing we need to remember. And um, you know, I I also just think Strang was just amazing. Figure, you know, this was the era of the self-made man, and this is a guy who just invented himself out of words. He was a great wordsmith, and he he was not like a particularly good-looking man. Um, uh, he he was charismatic, but he just invented himself out of words. He rose from obscurity to, uh, you know, I always compare him to Abraham Lincoln, who like Strang started out as this farm boy in the sticks and became a country lawyer and a postmaster and um, and a member of the state legislature uh, in Illinois in Lincoln's case. And their careers were on kind of parallel tracks for a long time. And for, for much of that time, Strang was far more famous than Lincoln. And so, again, we think back and we think, well, it's a joke to compare Strang to Lincoln. But, you know, <laughs> you catch it in the right year, it would be a joke to compare Lincoln to Strang, right? So, um, uh, and obviously Lincoln... Uh, his fortunes improved greatly with the formation of the Republican Party, which is where Strang's political fortunes stopped improving. The the, the Republican Party took over uh, the Michigan legislature and the governorship, and uh, Strang was a Democrat, lifelong Democrat, and um, uh, the Republicans liked his vote on um, uh, abolition issues, but didn't do much else for him, and his own party uh, got sick of him, and um, so yeah, and he just he just was not good at uh, he was great at making friends, but not at keeping them. So, uh, what happened to his descendants? I mean, are there any are are there James Strangers among us today, in some uh, capacity? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, four of his five wives were pregnant when he was shot and killed in eighteen fifty six, and they all and they all had. Children, uh, and so there are descendants. I've not met any descendants. I was on a, a big uh, AM radio talk show 
uh, last Saturday night, and uh, someone called in who was his brother David's, uh, who claimed to be his brother David's descendant. Um, and so I'm sure there are still uh, members of the Strang family out there, I, I would assume, but I, I, I didn't track any of them down. Most of the stuff, uh, I was interested in in the fact that the, this uh, descendant of David said he had some old family photographs, and I've emailed him, and, and I'm hoping to see them, because I think that would be a real contribution. But uh, luckily, um, most of uh, the... Um, there's just a ton of uh, documentation on Strang from his time, including these journals that he kept as a teenager and in his early 20s and um, hundreds of his letters. Um, and they, they were uh, his wives and other people hung on to them. And in uh, partly because uh, a good book was written about him in, I think, the 1930s. And uh, the guy, this guy, Milo Quaif, rounded up a lot of this stuff. And, the, and a lot of it wound up at, at Yale and at certain other archives. But um, there is just a, a wealth of information on him. And I also benefited from one other thing in a big way, is that uh, 19th century new- newspaper databases have really uh, gotten um, uh much more uh, in the way of uh, coverage in, 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 I mean, it, it just expanded greatly in, in the last five or 10 years. So that there's just all sorts of newspapers now from the 19th century that are fully searchable. Um, and so I've really, really benefited from that. There's, there's some stuff I've found some pretty important stuff about string that I just think other researchers wouldn't have been, they would have had to go too many places and, and, go on too many wild goose chases to, to try to find it where, you know, in some cases I find it with a word search, you know, in, in my basement at 1am. So, um, so that was a, that was a lucky thing and a, and a fun thing about the book. Well, it's a fascinating read. I mean, it's, it represents such a, such a weird little part of American history that I think all of us should be familiar with, even if straying did not lead the Brighamite church to which most of us doing and listening to the show are members. Um, it's certainly worth knowing. So the book again, everybody, the King of confidence, a tale of utopian dreamers, frontier schemers, true believers, false prophets, and the murder of an American monarch. The author is the wonderful miles Harvey. And to those of you who are social distancing, miles will be appearing in a virtual event over at uh, Weller Bookworks. If you live in the Salt Lake area, you probably know Weller Bookworks over there in Trolley Square. So I head over to Weller's Facebook page, uh, which is facebook.com slash Weller Bookworks, Monday, August 24th at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. You can uh, learn more about this as you see fit. Miles, thank you so, so much for your time this week. It's been a delight to have you. Uh, Jeff, it was a blast. Thank you for having me on and thanks for asking such great questions. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And uh, we'll link to the book, of course, on our website at thisweekinmormons.com. We certainly encourage you to uh, click over there, pick up a copy. It's well worth your time. It's a fun read. You really can't put it down. It's great times. Uh, So, Miles, thank you again. Thank you. And that's going to wrap it up for us this week. What, did you think there was more? Come on, folks. It's been over an hour. That's the show. I already did all my housekeeping. So that's it. It's great. We hope you'll be with us next week for more awesome, great, Mormony good times. Until then, be well, be holy, and be happy.